Welcome to Compelling Conversations with Colleagues. This program is sponsored by the ABA Government and Public Sector Lawyers Division. I'm Katherine Mickelson. Today, we have with us Julie Gonen. Julie is the Policy Director for the National Center for Lesbian Rights, where she directs the organization's federal policy portfolio, including legislative advocacy, agency rulemaking comments, and amicus efforts with Supreme Court litigation. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. So, Julie, tell us about the mission and the work of the NCLR. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, NCLR is a legal organization that seeks to advance equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans transgender people. We were founded by two attorneys in San Francisco in 1977 and have been headquartered there ever since. So we've been around for over 40 years. And since 2010, we have also had a team in Washington, D.C., which is actually where I'm located. We engage in direct litigation as well as advocacy work. So in addition to bringing cases in federal and state court to advance legal protections, we also try to shape policy at the state and federal levels. Okay, very good. Can you give us a snapshot about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, I can try. One of the best things about this job is actually that no two days really are alike. So as you mentioned at the beginning, I oversee our federal policy work here in our Washington, D.C. office. So that means most of the work is either legislative or in the executive branch, so administrative or regulatory policy. And then occasionally we do get involved in some sort of large-scale amicus efforts for significant litigation on civil rights issues going forward. So under the Obama administration, our work was more collaborative with the administration and involved more proactive work. That's actually why we opened the office in 2010, because the administration was very interested in working with the LGBT community to advance non-discrimination policies within federal agencies. Um, we had a really interesting program in cooperation with the U.S. Department of Agriculture called Rural Pride, where we collaborated with the agency to hold meetings in rural spaces to focus on the lived experiences of LGBT people in rural communities. So that was kind of an interesting way we were able to work with the prior administration. Now, unfortunately, it's more about protecting those gains and being vigilant and watching for rollbacks of the gains that we saw and trying to hold this administration accountable. So we watch for the issuance of harmful rules and regulations. And when we see them, we draft comments to sort of create a record of how harmful those new rules and regulations would be on our communities. And we encourage our supporters to weigh in as well. Um, we also work with sympathetic members of Congress to try to advance proactive policy now that the Democrats have um, retaken the House of Representatives, we have some opportunities for, for oversight, um, even if we can't actually get proactive legislation passed. Mm -hmm. Would you say that you're under this new administration that you're busier? You know, that's a good question. I probably, um, it's a little hard. It's the, the work has qualitatively shifted. So as I mentioned, it's less proactive and a little bit more defensive. And we do have to sort of watch for things on various fronts. So I think that's, that's probably true. Um, I can actually give an example um, that might sort of help illustrate how the, our organization works on multiple fronts. Um, as some folks probably know, in the summer of 2017, the president issued uh, several tweets indicating that he was going to bar transgender people from serving in our military. 
we found that to be extremely alarming, obviously, and we, along with an organization called GLAD, GLBTQ Advocates and Defenders out of Boston, were the first to sue the administration to stop that ban, and we were able to get an injunction in the case. At the same time, here in our Washington, D.C. office, we worked with men, we have been working with members of Congress to try to undo that policy legislatively, and uh, a few weeks ago, the House Armed Services Committee held a hearing on the ban to try to show how harmful and misguided that it was. So here's an example of a policy where we can kind of go at it both in court and in the policy arena. Mm -hmm. So let's switch a little bit more to uh, your career. Um, right after law school, you headed into private practice. Can you tell us about that? Sure. You know, that actually was not the goal originally when I went to law school. Um, law was actually a second career for me. I initially um, went to graduate school and got a doctorate in political science and sort of had my eye on uh, academia. In the course of my graduate work, I ended up working at several healthcare associations here in Washington over the course of about 10 years. And at the same time, when I was doing my, my PhD work, I ended up focusing on impact litigation. Um, I was very fascinated in that kind of avenue for policy change and became so fascinated with it that I decided I actually wanted to do it and not just study it. So after a year or two after I finished my PhD, I uh, went to law school part-time at Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, when I finished law school, I kind of, I balked a little bit at the at debt, you know, having to repay student loans, even though they weren't as bad as some because I did work during law school. So I went into private practice um, and I did, I focused on health law because of the health policy experience that I had gained over the prior 10 years. So I joined the firm Epstein, Becker & Green, which had, and I believe still has, the largest health law practice in the country. And I spent about six years there. And then I joined a small firm of some former Epstein Becker attorneys called um, Potter and Murdoch. Then I moved to a third firm at the suggestion of a friend, um, which provided an opportunity to go back and do some more healthcare work. Um, I have no regrets about going into private practice. I learned a lot. Um, but yeah, that wasn't initially my focus. Mm -hmm. So in 2012, you left private practice and you joined the nonprofit world. What prompted you to make that kind of switch? Well, as I mentioned, that was kind of my goal from the beginning. I, I had become, as I said, very interested in the idea of using the, the legal system as a way to affect progressive change. And then after about eight years in private practice, I decided it was time to revisit why I had gone to law school in the, in the first place. And, you know, reproductive rights have always been my passion, um, both sort of as a personal commitment and it is something I also had focused on in earlier stages of my career. It was it, it was a central theme in my dissertation. It was part of it was the focus of my law school note and um, the Center for Reproductive Rights, which is where I went when I made the switch from private practice to nonprofit, was an organization that I had long admired because they were doing impact litigation for abortion rights and other reproductive rights. Um, I really admired them, uh, but they're based in New York, and so I sort of didn't think that was a place I would end up, but then they had a, they opened up a Washington office, and I applied for a lobbying job and honestly did not think I would get it because that really wasn't my background. It wasn't my skill set, 
But this was, as you mentioned, back in 2011 when the Affordable Care Act was still fairly new, and a lot of people were trying to figure out what that was going to mean for a whole lot of things, including access to reproductive health care. So it turned out that my prior experience in the healthcare space helped me actually get in the door for my first nonprofit job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how did you land your position at NCLR? Well, LGBT equality is another thing that I'm pretty passionate about and, and something that affects me personally. And the National Center for Lesbian Rights, where I am now, is another organization that I had admired and followed and supported financially for really for decades. Um, in this instance, I kind of heard through the grapevine that this position was going to be opening up because the person who previously occupied it was moving to join the Obama administration. So I kind of reached out to some folks I knew here and said that I would be very interested in talking to them about this role, and it ended up working out pretty well. What's the best thing about your current job? The best thing about my current job, I think, is the feeling like I'm working on something every day that is truly important at a critical juncture in our history. Marriage equality was obviously a huge milestone that our community won a few years back, but so much hard work remains. I think it can be easy for those who aren't part of the LGBTQ community to um, to lose sight a little bit of the fact that gaining the right to marry, which was huge, wasn't the end of the story. There's still so much work to be done to advance broad non-discrimination protections, to make sure that everybody can serve in our military, to make sure our families are protected. So I feel really privileged to be able to be part of this movement. On the flip side, what's the most challenging thing? There are challenging things about this job. Uh, Sometimes I feel a little bit like I'm uh, kind of a mile wide and an inch deep because there are just so many things to work on. It's hard to think of an issue I don't know that I could think of an issue that does not affect the LGBTQ community. So when you have a position like this working on federal policy around LGBTQ rights, there are so many places to to focus. And um, sometimes it can be a little hard to figure out what to focus on next when so many things are happening. And, you know, the other thing that, of course, makes it challenging right now is that we are, you know, we we face a very hostile administration that, you know, has um, we, we sort of anticipated that it was going to be challenging, and as it turned out to be very true, there are people in this administration from the top down who are not friendly to the advancement of LGBTQ equality and are, in fact, undoing some of the things that we've gained over the years. And it's important to, to be here and take a stand and do this work, but it, it, it can be challenging sometimes to be coming up against people and policies that are really harmful to our community. So, Julie, what's your proudest work-related accomplishment? Well, I think I would have to say some work I did actually at my last job when I was at the Center for Reproductive Rights. I was tasked with helping to get introduced a piece of proactive legislation uh, that would protect access to abortion rights in this country. Um, We are facing a lot of challenges to access, uh, particularly for uh, people who live in red states or who are low income. There's kind of a relentless attack on abortion rights. And 
at the Center for Reproductive Rights, we decided that it was time to actually kind of go on the offense again and uh, create some legislation that pro-choice members of Congress could sign on to to show their commitment to ensuring access. So our work resulted in a bill that is currently, um, it's about to be reintroduced, I believe in a few weeks, it's called the Women's Health Protection Act, and it would basically prevent states from passing restrictions on abortion that pretend to be about health and safety, but are really about making it virtually impossible to be an abortion provider. Um, when I was when I came on to, into that job, that was one of the biggest challenges that was put in front of me. So I was working on both the substance of the law as well as rounding up support from other organizations and finding sponsors on Capitol Hill. So it was kind of a multi-pronged effort. It was a tremendous amount of work. But we ended up with a really good piece of legislation. We had some hearings in the Senate. We had, we've had some lobby days now to bring people from around the country to show why this work is important. So I feel really proud of helping to get that off the ground. And I really hope that someday I'll, I'll get to see it signed into law. Oh, that would be cool. It would. So what advice would you give to a law student who is interested in working for a nonprofit advocacy group? Well, I would say perhaps the most obvious is that they should probably expect a little bit less money than if they go to work for a private law firm. But I will also say that as far as salaries in the nonprofit sector go, legal jobs do pay better. So, so that's, that's one thing. Um, I think back in the day, I had heard that it was difficult to move from private practice into public interest work, and I have actually not found that to be true. I think that public interest organizations recognize that the experience that private sector lawyers bring to the table is really valuable and important. So I don't think that it, it sort of taints you if you've, if you've worked for a law firm and then want to move into public interest work. I was able to, to negotiate that shift. Um, and also, as I uh, alluded to earlier, you know, don't underestimate the usefulness of prior experience that you have. I never thought that my health policy and health law background would be the thing that would help me make the move into public interest work, but it actually did. So I think um, you know people should look at their background and, and realize that, that that it could actually be helpful in ways they don't anticipate. And then maybe the last thing is to not be frustrated by the apparent lack of jobs. The universe of jobs in the public interest space is smaller, I think, than than what you're going to find in the private sector, particularly if you're interested in a very specific issue area. But there is also a decent amount of turnover, and if you're patient, the jobs will will come along. Mm, great advice. If you could have dinner with three lawyers you don't know, they could be living or, or, or dead, who would you pick? Wow, there are so many. I, I feel like the obvious answers would be, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and Hillary Clinton. But uh, so I'll cheat and I'll put those aside. Um, I would say uh, I'd love to have dinner with Catherine McKinnon, who, who is, you know, a pre she is a, a legal scholar who was one of the very first to really um, advance uh, feminist legal theory, feminist jurisprudence, and crafted some doctrines that we now almost take for granted, like around sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, her work I read with great interest when I was in graduate school, and I think that contributed to my fascination with how, uh, how being a lawyer is a, is a great way to be a social change agent. So I'd love to meet her. I would love to meet Sarah Weddington, who represented Jane Roe in the obviously incredibly important Supreme Court case of Roe versus Wade. And um, 
I think for the third one, I would say Thurgood Marshall. Uh, he was one of the pioneers decades ago in actually using the court system to advance civil rights when other arenas like the legislature were hostile. So he was a pioneer in that area. And, and again, that's why I went to law school was to do this kind of work. So, so I think I would include him on my list for my, my, my dinner party. <laughs> Those are great picks. Well, Julie, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. If you want to learn more about the ABA's Government and Public Sector Lawyers Division, go to www.governmentlawyer.org.